0: Okay um, the, the, We're, going, right the, we're, we're uh, doing a subject now which again is much too big for a session like this It's impossible uh, to try to deal adequately with it So please bear with me once again I'm just trying to throw out some ideas for you to, to, to work with yourselves um, <clears throat> The subject is bigger We're flavia. Bigger <laughs> but Flavia. Uh, in other words, what's happening in evangelicalism today? Where, where are we? And I find it very helpful in understanding this crisis, because I do believe it, it is a crisis that we are involved in at the moment. It may not seem it um, in some respects, but I do believe it, it's there. And uh, it's a very, very serious situation And I want to try to clarify it. But in order to do that, I think it's helpful to go backwards in time and just have a very quick survey of what happened. I've got a diagram here. I'll just refer to it in a moment. But if I give you a bit of background uh, myself first, then I think it'll make it more intelligible. If you want to understand our culture, you have to understand that it is the product of two revolutions. You know, like the Russian Revolution... Uh, 1917 and all the change that that brought, the Marxists took over, Mao Tung, China, and all that kind of thing. Well, it wasn't exactly like that. I don't mean a revolution like that. I don't mean guys getting out in the streets with, with guns and all that. But a revolution of ideas. <clears throat> so you have the medieval period coming up through from the time when the Roman Empire was uh, broken up, and then you have the time when Christianity was just a a very dim light to begin with, and people like Cuthbert who came here as missionaries and buried in Durham Cathedral. There weren't many Christians around here. You know, a very dim light. But gradually the light grew. And we cannot disparage what happened in the Middle Ages as if it was all the Dark Ages, because some wonderful things were produced, like Durham Cathedral. Uh, But... There were some problems. There were some very serious problems. Although they had the Bible, it was as if they'd put the Bible under a great big uh, uh, slab of, um, of, of metal, and no one was allowed real access to this Bible. And that's what the Reformation was. Now, that's the first revolution. The first revolution was, the, was the, the uncovering, the laying bare ...of the word of God. Sola Scriptura. That's the, the principle. Only the word of God. Not the church is our authority. Okay? Now, why I call that a revolution was ...that although at the time people weren't going out with guns... ...they did later, in fact. A century later, there was a civil war. And if you want to understand what that was about... ...it was essentially... ...and I'm not justifying it all... ...everything that happened... ...but essentially what it was doing... ...was it was trying to protect... ...the changes that had come already and to open up the possibility of the Bible's central position in the society becoming a reality, as over against the way the king was trying to turn the clock back and to bring back the Catholic religion and the dominance not of Parliament in the political arena, but of the king and the nobility. Okay? Now... So there were guns uh, on the streets, as it were. I'm I'm not saying there wasn't a, a sense of the revolution like that. And that's a very big subject in itself. But I'm talking about what happened in the 16th century, the Reformation. It really changed the whole society. Gradually, little by little, you had a different culture produced in which there was political freedom, in which there was a gradual improvement in the economic standing of the people where famines used to break out just like they break out in Ethiopia right now, they used to do that here. Now, terrible plagues. And gradually the thing uh, got sorted out. Now, the second revolution was a revolution to try to um, break away from the effects of the Reformation, the Christian base. And that revolution was called the Enlightenment in the 18th century. It wasn't an Enlightenment any more than the Renaissance was a rebirth. It was an endarkenment. The people who started that revolution said, we don't need God anymore, we don't need the Bible. Okay? This is the 18th century, 1700s, before the French Revolution. And, really, to understand our culture, what you have to see is that there was a base and a movement in the culture, a direction that the culture took as a result of the First Revolution. And then, and you can use any illustration you like, I'm going to present you with one in a moment, but it was like a poison being introduced into the system by the Enlightenment, which only hit this country around about the middle of the 19th century. It's just a bit more than 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And the effect of that new philosophy has gradually worked its way out, so if you want to know why the TV and and, uh, and, and all the, the universities and so on are representing a humanist philosophy, essentially, and not a biblical one, not a Christian one, this is the reason. There was the second revolution which finally prevailed. Now, you see, we are called, that's what I was trying to deal with earlier, in trying to reverse that whole thing again and bring back a third re- revolution, I. A Reformation, again, another Reformation, where the Bible is brought back into the central place, where people will become Christians in sufficient numbers, that in the political arena the laws can be framed on the basis of the Word of God. You see, it's an audacious thing we're on about. And whether we succeed or not, that is what it seems to us we are called to do as God's people in this, in this, in this culture. Okay. Now, let me give you the diagram, because it relates to the evangelicals in this way, and I think I can make it clearer from this illustration. Okay, I'll just use this pointer here, and I'll get down so that you can all see it, okay? Here, you see the two great (coughs) revolutions. Here's 1500, right there, and just after that, a short while after that, you have the, the Reformation beginning in England, and Cranmer and Ridley and all those guys. And this column, this column like this, is this movement that I suggested. You know, how the culture changed. I would say for the better. Where the laws of the country were framed on the basis of the word of God being really true. Where there was an influence into the whole culture of our Christian faith. So then you go, this is the yellow, right? And it's like a wall. This is the illustration I picture. A wall being built. It's a good wall. It's a strong wall. But, Along comes the counter-reformation, not, not what's technically called the counter-reformation, but the Enlightenment. It was against the Reformation. It was against the idea of the, of the uh, Bible being true, and so on. This is the Enlightenment here. The Second Revolution brings in this blue coloring. Do you all see this blue coloring? And how the influence of that humanistic philosophy grew. But the reason why I've drawn this line across there is that it was like a break in the wall and with the passage of time the wall starts to tumble didn't to tumble first just immediately, uh, instantly the momentum was strong enough and the earlier humanists were representing things like the value of the individual and, and all those wonderful things um, the moral standards in other words of the culture that had existed before but they just said oh well we can get rid of Jesus Christ we can just go on in the old way keep the old morality, you know, we will all be nice, etc., etc., but it soon ground down because they couldn't sustain the morality. You see, couldn't sustain the morality. You can only sustain the morality on the basis of this really being true. And so a change came. And that's the wall beginning to, to fall over, do you see? <clears throat> this red is just to explain the significance of science. That's what I was saying earlier on this afternoon. The red grew here,
1: You have um, someone
0: like Galileo, early, um, late 17th century, and the beginnings of modern science, okay? Royal Society, 1665, I think it was. And and here the red and technology growing in our society, so it's diffused throughout the whole. Now, I think the whole thing's going to fall. I don't think that our culture can be sustained. And this buttress here, this blue here, It's it's just an illusory buttress. And it's the illusion of success based upon economics. It's like a huge machine that's been generated, uh, generated uh, uh, power. And you set it off down the road, and then it hits a bump. And it goes off the road. But it's still got momentum, it's moving, you know, it's moving. And our culture's got this tradition, it's very powerful in this way but sooner or later I would suggest you cannot stand and it's going to fall in one way or another. That's another whole discussion. I'm just trying to give you a picture. Now, where did the Evangelicals fit into this and what's the crisis? Well, this over here on this side is supposed to represent this uh, graph. It's supposed to be zero to 100%. And I mean by that commitment to the principle of the Reformation, what I was describing last night as the restoration of the image of God, really changing the whole of life. I have a wonderful quotation from a Puritan that I've never heard about before, a man called Thomas Case. And it just is about five or six lines of all the things that have to be reformed in the society. You know, reform this, reform that, reform the next thing, uh, that was their view. And so they did. Like old Carey going out to India. You see, he didn't succeed. He changed a lot. It was through him, for example, that Bentink, later, who was the governor, uh, changed the law about Sati. That is the, um, the killing of the widows by throwing them onto the fire. And it was Daryl Kerry's influence. So he changed a lot, but he didn't succeed in changing the whole of India. But these guys succeeded in changing the whole thing. Right? Changed the whole thing. So you've got a 100% involvement in that principle. That's what I'm trying to show here. Got it? Tell me if I'm confusing you. Okay, what happened there? That's the critical question. What was going on here? What were you all doing there? Right? It's getting a bit thin. Look at it, man. See? See, it's getting thin. That was the rise of what I described as uh, pietism this idea that, oh no, you don't have to be involved in culture, just be involved in spiritual things, devotional things, being nice, philanthropic things, be a doctor, don't be a politician. And as a result, as a result, what happened was, it was a real tragedy, at the very moment when we needed our big guns to come out of port, because the enemy's uh, big (coughs) battleship had come out on the other side of of the ocean there, we hadn't got any guns we'd left them behind. And this was a tragedy. And by the end of the 19th century, I've stopped at about 1850, but by the end of the 19th century, you had the the development of what was called fundamentalism. Now that brings us to the crisis. Now fundamentalism was this. The guys had, had come to the conclusion that there was a very serious challenge to their whole system. Here was the Enlightenment and its influence growing. Um, here were whole churches going off from the faith, becoming liberal. Um, here were the universities all giving up any any semblance of Christianity, becoming humanist. And there was this, uh, um, how shall I put it, a word that I use sometimes as a sort of a sublimation it's a word from psychology, that when a person's weak in one area, they put all their energy into another area. Rather than face the problem, they put all their energy into another area. It was something like that. So what they did was, they were attacked on the side of philosophy, the intellectual things, and they poured all their energy into evangelism. And then evangelism became the big thing and the only thing, practically. Now remember, please remember, This is is very shorthand, you know. I mean, this is just, I'm, I'm drawing a very quick sketch, and I can't go into all the details. There were individuals who weren't doing this, who were fighting in the right way, and so on and so forth. But in general, that's how it went. And it continued like that right up until the Second World War, where although there were those who were within the evangelical constituency who believed Christianity to be true, there was very little going on in terms of the challenge of the, of the ideas. They were just saying, we don't like him, go away, <laughs> you see. And I'm thankful they did that much because I wouldn't have become a Christian if they hadn't. Because it was this group that preached the gospel to me and I became a Christian. So I'm not disparaging them as if, you know, they were doing nothing. But in the critical areas of the, of the struggle of, of challenging the ideas, the thinking of the Enlightenment, no, not very much, Okay. And it became very narrow and legalistic. Don't go and watch movies. Don't go to um, the theater. Don't read too much. A friend of mine at, at university was reading English. This is at Cambridge University. He was reading English. And an older Christian went to him and said, you know, I know you have to read all these terrible books, but try to read as few books as possible. <laughs> I mean, that's to see this defensive spirit, this feeling of, oh, this terrible world out there. And then, worse still, when people came along and had questions, like I I was presented with questions, and I had questions my own, and you went to ask if there were any answers to the questions, you didn't get much help. No, there aren't any questions. Don't worry about questions. Forget your mind. Just believe. There was too much of that around. Okay. Now, here it goes. There was a revival. Now, not a revival in the sense of, you know, everyone becoming converted and so on. But there were some people who said, look, this is not right. We should not be in this fundamentalist mentality, this separatist mentality, you know, staying away from the world. We mustn't be legalistic. We have to develop the mind and so on. That was great, wasn't it? This was a step in the right direction. They said this is not biblical, and they took a step in the right direction. Now the problem was this and I've got great sympathy for these men some of whom I know personally still alive but around about the Second World War the 40s there was a shift and they said look we're going to change it we're going to go into the university thing we're going to fight the fight and we're going to deal with the ideas and we're going to show that we can stand and that Christianity, the Bible is relevant to all these areas and that's what they did problem was, as well as some good things emerging from that, they had very little um, capital, so to speak. They had very little capital on which to fall back <coughs> when they got into the universities. And they were facing all these terrible ideas. Now, I, I, I did that. you know. I went, I went to a theological college, to a faculty of a university, where I was the only Bible-believing Christian in the whole place. And let me just tell you, man, it's not easy. So these guys were in a big struggle, and some of you, I know, must have experienced similar kinds of things. So I'm not trying to underestimate the struggle that was involved. They were going like lambs to the slaughter, and uh, and they went in and they didn't know what to say very often. And some of the ideas of the Enlightenment filtered through into their sort of subconscious. That's how I would put it, that they would have rejected it, they would have rejected the ideas, but it was influencing them at the same time. Do you see what I mean? And so gradually the edge was lost, the sharp edge that should have been maintained of judging these ideas, and they didn't think at the time that what they were doing was serious, but little by little it became apparent that the edge had been lost by certain things which developed in the church. So I'm, I'm going now from the period from about four, the 40s up through the 60s and the 70s, okay, towards our own generation. And then suddenly it started to happen. And suddenly one realized that there was a problem. That's what I call the crisis. When people who were so-called evangelicals, standing in this tradition, going back into the 19th century and the 18th century, right back to the Reformation, they call themselves evangelicals, they believed the Bible and so on, and they started to change their views in some critical areas. And the first and the most serious was the Bible, of course. Because I hope, if you haven't got anything else from this time together, that you have got this, that the Bible is our basis, it's our foundation. If we don't have that, we have nothing. Okay, And so there was a compromising of the principle of the authority of God's Word. That was the first, very, very serious step. <clears throat> My father in law wrote a book, a, a pamphlet, called The Watershed of, uh, of Christianity. The Watershed. It's this, this uh, dividing line. If you, if, you, if you make a mistake here, it may not seem very much, but the river's going to go that way. It's not going to go that way, it's going to go that way. Big mistake. And so we ran into things which were very strange to us. I had this sort of experience. Now, this is a book <laughs> which came out, it was published by an Australian company called Albatross, and it was, co- it was distributed, co-published by Lion in this country. Now you say, but lion it's an evangelical publishing, isn't it? She's is good books. So I got this book, it looked interesting, um, by an Australian uh, Anglican, Bruce Wilson. It's called The Human Journey. And it sounded such an interesting blurb on, on the back. I thought, oh, I'll read this thing. And it was kind of comparing him to C.S. Lewis. You know how C.S. Lewis wrote that very helpful book? Um, well, I can think it was basic Christianity. <laughs> yeah, mere <laughs> mere. Yeah. Christianity. And, um, and so he, I thought, oh, this is great. Here's a, here's a person who's calling himself an evangelical. C.S. Lewis never called himself great as he was. Didn't call himself an evangelical. And he differed this seriously at some points. But anyway, this, this was how it was presented. I said, let's get into it. This is fantastic. So I started to read. And I, as the further I went, the more concerned I became. And when he got to the bit where he's talking about the beginning of man, now, uh, again, this is critical, isn't it? I mean, the view that you have of man, and what, how, where man's come from, what happened to man, the fall. And this, these, I'll just read you some extracts, OK? It made me so concerned, in fact, that I wrote to the publishing house because I knew someone who was there, who was in it. And I said, um, do you realize what you guys are publishing? Now, they had already had some problems and some doubts, and they thought they could get it through anyway. But they pulled it off the shelves on the basis of this protest. This just, just of my, you know, the single protest, which incidentally shows that we can do things. You know, one can make a, a difference, but... The point I'm trying to make is here, is listen for this, because you'll you'll hear this kind of theology around, even in evangelical churches now. It's all about the fall. And some of you were in my um, workshop last night when I said that if I was talking about evolution to a person who's a Christian, called himself a Christian, theistic uh, evolutionist, that is that God had started the whole thing, but he'd used evolution, I would insist that (coughs) three things had to be maintained Otherwise, Christianity would be dead. The first one was God began, <clears> created <throat> the, in, the, in the first place. The reality wasn't just sort of floating around someplace, and then God found it. <laughs> the, it was created ab initio, by himself. Yeah. Secondly, that the, the creation was perfect, including two men, uh, two people, man and woman, excuse me. <laughs> <what? laughs>
2: <laughs> two
0: people, a man and a woman, who were the beginnings of the whole human race. But, very particularly, that both nature and man, mankind, was perfect. Because if you didn't have that, you'd have had God having made an evil person at the beginning. And then thirdly, of course, the historical form. That the reason why evil came in was because man rebelled against God. It didn't come in just by chance, you know. It was brought about by man's revolution that if you didn't have those things, everything would be gone. Now, this is Bruce Wilson on this whole thing. Theology does not treat these stories as historically true, parenthesis, in the modern sense, but as theologically true. (laughs) Obviously, the description of Adam and Eve's fallen condition is a description of the reality we live in. The space-time world of everyday life. The story of Adam is the human story, our story. Now, can you detect what's wrong with that? It's true, it is our story. and says that our fallenness is a product of what they did. But our story is not Adam and Eve's story. They did it. Because they did it, we're in this situation, he said. And he just confuses you, and he makes it seem as if all that it's teaching is that we're in a fallen world. No, no. What Genesis says is it wasn't a fallen world, and it became a fallen world, you see. Listen, this is the worst. Yet one element of this theological picture seems to be uh, contradicted by the discoveries of modern science. Science says that the natural causes of pain and suffering, earthquakes, cyclones, disease, death, etc., were in the universe long before self-conscious humans came on the scene. Thus, how could a human fall into evil cause what was already there? If theology insisted that the story of the fall was part of the history of this universe as it is now, its explanation could only be valid if the theory of evolution was false. Of course, this is possible. Some scientists do believe the theory is false. But, as this appears less than likely, it is not a course that will be pursued here. In fact, the biblical story specifically states, listen to this, that the fall took place in another reality, symbolized by the paradisal garden from which humanity is banished. Another reality. Now, you see, this, this gets very close to sort of the myths of Hindu uh, theology, of Hindu uh, philosophy. But... Is that, is that uh, where, it, where it ends? And unfortunately, the story is worse than that. Um, the, a number of people who are fairly prominent in the evangelical world, for them, this would be standard. This would be standard. George Carey, I just must mention these people in, by name. I do not mean to insult them. I do not mean to imply that they are not Christians, that they are my brothers that in many respects they're not better than myself, and so on and so forth and so forth. But I believe they've made a serious mistake. Theologically, they've made a serious mistake. George Carey has written in very similar vein. I don't have the time to read. I've got it here in my back. And his book, um, I Believe in Man, in the first two chapters, you'll find exactly those ideas that I've read from Bruce Wilson's book in that. Now, George Carey's, you know, just recently become bishop, Bishop of World. And he was... um, Principal until quite recently, of one of the outstanding evangelical theological colleges in this country, namely Trinity Bristol. Um, David Winter, I'll just read another example. David Winter wrote a, a little thing, a booklet, uh, 1980, called But This I can Believe. Interestingly enough, there was only one man in the whole book that he took to task. And that was Francis Schaeffer, very interesting. But I'm now giving you another example of the way this sort of mentality works. This is a quotation about the wise men, the story of the wise men. I've now little. I have little doubt now that the story of the wise men is midrash, that is, a beautifully imaginative story woven around the various Old Testament prophecies, and intended to establish that the Messiah is a king for all people, everywhere. In other words, this didn't really happen, you see. Just like another man teaching at another theological college said, Daniel wasn't a real person. There's no Daniel in the lion's den. It's all just a fictitious story. And so, little by little, you see, this, the, the things were changed, like this, this mentality was changing in relation to the word of God. Interestingly, David went to himself At the time of that book in 1980, he said, the virgin birth itself is put in this doubtful category by many otherwise conservative scholars. That's a quote. Page 63. The virgin birth itself is also put in this, quote, doubtful category by many otherwise conservative scholars. At the time, he went on to say that he did believe it. He did believe the virgin birth was true. Uh, there's, there's more to the story here is I haven't got the book itself I'm afraid I really must get it but here's a review of his later book 1985 Truth in the Sun meaning S-O-M published by Hodder and the, the reviewer goes through the ideas about Genesis etc uh, theisti- uh, evangelical beliefs regarding creation are summarily dismissed as the crudest caricature in quotes of what the Bible is really saying. Literal creationism is parodied as deism. Now he comes to chapter 3. The author speaks of three biblical accounts which he believes are only, quote, pictures. The fall, the burning bush, and the virginal conception. Do you you see the shift there? The virgin birth, the, the idea of of Mary having given birth to a virgin. It's just a picture. It didn't really happen. She wasn't really a virgin. I i, I see you looking worried, man, and I'm glad you're worried, because I'm worried, and this is a sad story. Who, who's, that who, who, who's that? This is Bruce, uh, David Winter, Truth in the Sun. Why he takes, why he takes the, the, uh, the, the, um, The burning bush is just amazing to me, I must say. Um, Here's the quote. The insight this narrative affords does not depend, this is a direct quote from uh, Winter, on whether the virginal conception is something that actually happened as a matter of biological fact, or whether it is a picture given by divine inspiration to light up for us the true identity of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to try to make a point in saying this. Okay, and not to suggest that these people are saying this, but w- couldn't you also argue on the same basis and say, hey, but this is presented as if she was really a virgin, you know, and, and she was going to conceive the Son of God, here's the angel Gabriel comes in. Couldn't you say that the same thing happened with the resurrection and, and, the, and the, uh, the death of Jesus and the resurrection? Well, what would be different? Why wouldn't you argue like that? Well, of course, you know that some liberal theologians have argued like that. There's one very close to this. <laughs> so, so, this is the, so that was the first area, okay? In the area of the view of the Bible. Now there were others, and it was kind of like a cancer that, that, that gradually developed. One of the things that was very striking to us was that there was almost nothing, and here I judge myself in this, because we did so little initially, in big, really big moral issues... These guys weren't leading us out to battle and saying, come on, troops, we've got to get, get, get stuck in here. Our culture is doing something very, very bad. Let's do something about it. And they didn't do that. Far from it. There was an absolute silence from the evangelical leadership in the issue of abortion, apart from one small exception, an almost total silence on the issue of abortion from the time that it was passed 1967, till the time we really got on the road, 1980. 1980. Now, you have to ask the question, how is it that we who say we believe the Bible is the Word of God, it's authority, and the Bible says that man's made in the image of God, and each individual is precious, and that we should suffer little children to come to, to God, to Jesus, and not, and not do anything. And when it says, if anyone murders his own life is forfeit, and you've got to get rid of blood guilt... And the whole of the Old Testament is the seriousness of taking innocent life. That's not that's not the issue of war, okay? And, and uh, just war and all that, let's talk about it another time. But taking innocent life, what more innocent than a baby? Right? And here in our society, we're killing 185,000 or more per annum, year after year. Yeah? And, and our leaders haven't stood up. They're still going out saying, come on, guys, we've to evangelize the society. But we haven't stood up and said, look, man, we've got to nail this. This is awful. This is an abomination in God's sight. Why why the silence? Why this terrible absence of concern? If it's this in the Bible, why isn't it in the church? That's the question. Well, you understand. I mean, here I'm quoting from George Carey again, and admittedly this is taken from a little pamphlet on the issue of the women's issue, uh, with which I also disagree with him, but but, uh, that's another matter. It says the New Testament was not addressing itself to our situation, and we cannot go to it expecting to find clear instructions concerning church order today. Dash. And here's the giveaway line. Any more than we can find clear guidance about abortion and genetic engineering. You see, one would agree with him about parts of that. Okay, the New Testament doesn't give us clear guidance on every single detail of church order. We would have thought it was fairly clear about the basic structure. At least that's what I would have thought It's given us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 and elsewhere. But, but uh, even if I was to concede that, what about the abortion thing? Don't you have any clear guidance? Isn't the tiny little um, um, embryo, isn't that not the beginnings of you and me? How else did we get there? Why should we not call it the beginnings of a person and treat it with the respect that we should? Why not? Why aren't the Christian leaders calling us this? Why aren't the evangelical leaders doing something about this? And so on. I could go on and on. The third area was that worried us was that it sounded increasingly as if in the area of political and economic thought all that the evangelical leaders were beginning to do was to sort of echo, echo the thinking that was, was prevalent in the society today. So in an issue like development, which is a critical issue, I do urge you to think about it. And there's an awful lot of nonsense going on in the evangelical church at this point. Ian gave a seminar, so you could get his, um, workshops. So you could get his tape on this. Mm-hmm. But over and over again, the West, and particularly capitalism, mm-hmm. and America, are blamed for all the evils of the world. And you hear nothing in their read nothing in their literature or hear nothing from them in their speaking. I heard some of these guys like Jim Wallace in the flesh and challenged him in the flesh. But but you hear nothing of the biblical emphasis which is so clear that you reap what you sow. That if you worship a god, like the Hindu gods or the Buddhist gods of, of Nepal, India and so on, uh, if you are a Confucianist or if you are Shinto, whatever else, you will reap the products of your idolatry. Isn't that the message of the Old Testament? It says <coughs> it time after time. You leave the true God, you go after these other things, and what you will have is tears, bitterness. This is the message of the prophets of the Old Testament. Why doesn't it shine through? Why don't we hear this element in the teaching of evangelical leaders? So, for all these reasons, you see, what I feel has happened is that even though there has been this growth of evangelism, So you read the statistics, and now we've passed the 50% line in terms of ordinance for the Church of England. So everyone says, great, man. Back in 1910, it was something like 14%, and from then on it's crept up. Uh, you'll be able to give us the details, but you've got this change you know, in, in the evangelical and It's very, very encouraging, it's, seemingly. And there are many things in this which are very good, Wonderful. But what about all this? And where is it going? And what do we do about it? Well, I think it's serious. I think we have to call people back to the position which was maintained at the time of the Reformation in relation (coughs) to the Word of God, and we have to um, get our thinking straight at these these points. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it there, and we can have 20 minutes of discussion, 15 minutes of discussion. And I hope I've sketched it even, you know, briefly uh, in some way that could be helpful to you in your own thinking, even if you disagree with me. Yeah. Any questions?
2: Would you like to say something, Ronald, about the... uh, Effect this process has had on
0: the evangelical gospel. Yeah. You probably know more about it than I do, Rich. Um, What would you think?
2: I'm tired of speaking. I mean, in 1972, because nobody else would go, I was. Northeastern Diocese Evangelical council asked me to be their representative on the Church of England Evangelical Council, hmm. uh, which is repris- was representative of Evangelicals all over the country. And I mean, I found it took me a year to, before I could sort of breathe the air of, of that meeting, um, because the interests were uh, were not gospel centred. They were not Bible centered, they, they were for uh, um, a large part of social and so on. And, and the message of the gospel that was coming over was was um, uh, the lifestyle one. You know, you're converted to an, a, a simple kind of lifestyle, just kind mm-hmm. of the Jim Wallace kind mm-hmm. of emphasis, very right. simply. Um, and uh, the idea of extending the kingdom by social justice and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. The the idea of um, presenting a living Christ to meet our needs. You know, the the youth rally where um, the picture of, of human need is, is 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 depicted, and here's a living saviour to help you. But the cross is left out. Mm. The need of man to be reconciled right, to God. And that right. element is left out. Mm-hmm. And it's these kind of things, in a very That's sketchy right. way, that, That's right. that I have found are replacing the need of man to, for God to do something, to lift us out of the, the, the miry pit of sin, set our feet upon our rock, mm-hmm. and to live the kind of life based on the mm-hmm. word of God that, That's right. that you have been speaking mm-hmm. about. Exactly. The, the concerns are, are <coughs> very uh, real and sincere, but they lack often the spiritual emphasis, mm. the eternal emphasis. Right. They're meeting man's need rather than dealing with God's
0: judgment on sin. Right. I would totally agree with that. In other words, I, I've been going to these details because I think they're important for you to, to sense. So these are actually in writing this is not hearsay, they're in writing. And, uh, but these are only the tip of an iceberg. And the more serious element is the implications of all this for something like the kind of message that people are being presented with, the gospel. And that is changing also. Yeah, that's, that's an inevitable consequence of these changes. Yes? I'd like
1: to ask a question, I guess I'll say, particularly contemporarily about the 80s. Yes. Uh, you can tell from my accent that I'm, although I'm from here, I haven't been from, only have been from here for a few months. Yes. I'm <laughs> Canadian. Um, here in Britain, in terms of positive signs, mm-hmm. in terms of um, leadership and yeah. achievement that is truly evangelical right. and balanced as you view it, uh, what are some positive signs that you or anyone else here are aware of, you are aware of, or anybody else here is aware of, say in the last decade, that
0: are especially encouraging? Well, this is where what I'm trying to say is it's, it's very mixed, you see, it's bigger but Flavier. Mm-hmm. So one doesn't want to deny the good things mm-hmm. like in the bigger, you know, like sure. down in our area of the country, there are several churches that I know where someone has come in who is an evangelical vicar where there wasn't one before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, the Bible is being presented much more than it ever was before. But this is where you have these wonderful, um, not wonderful, uh, awesome pictures out of the kings in the Old Testament. Like, uh, was it Jehoshaphat who said uh, he'll make an alliance, he was the king of Judah, he said he'd make an alliance with uh, Ahab who was king of the northern kingdom. And they'd go to war together. And then this led on to uh, a marriage uh, contract. And he married uh, his uh, daughter to the uh, son of the, of the uh, household of, of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, and then you come to the next generation and you can end the story for me. Disaster. So the bigger, you see, is there, it looks like this success, you know, in one sense. And I'm not, believe me, not trying to belittle some of the good things that have happened. There's been a penetration, for example, into the media that there hasn't been before, and David Winter has been involved in that. And one's glad for whatever of the Gospel still remains that is being presented. Mm-hmm. But in, in in this particular area that we're talking about, and it, it largely involves the evangelical Anglicans, unfortunately. And I don't have a, you know, um, a brief to sort of challenge the Anglicans present. Far from it. I have great respect for the Anglican tradition. But this is something which concerns one, in the same way that Jehoshaphat was told, you know, should you love the enemies of God? Should, should evangelicals be doing these sorts of things? with liberal theology, taking on board these sorts of ideas about the four, about the wise men, and so on. So it's, it's a complicated one to answer that. Now, there's another whole discussion to be held, and that's what's happening outside of all of this. You know, like spring harvest, house church movement, and so on. So that's another ball game. I don't know if you want to talk about that. But there are positive things in that, and then there are, there are some, some difficult things in that. Um, I feel myself, as I said in the earlier session here, that my great concern in that is simply that we've been sidetracked for at least uh, three decades from the central issue. Mm. The central issue was truth and we've been bombing around, having celebrations and um, and new music not that, that, that this isn't a, a legitimate thing to, to do necessarily um, some of the celebrations remind me of of, uh, of what the people of Israel were doing when they came up to Jerusalem you know, they all gathered up there and they had a great time singing and dancing and so on and I don't have any problem in theory with any of that you know. but when you scratch the surface and you ask what's going on underneath in terms of real theology and is, are the people being led to a deeper appreciation of the fundamentals of the Christian faith some of these things we've been talking about Um, Then I say, again, it's it's confusing, yes, no. (laughs) And uh, again you feel like it's it's at a different level or a different sphere, however you want to use it, but over in this area you feel like these guys, did you hear the bit in um, Bruce Wilson? But of course no scientists believe that, Mm -hmm. so neither were we, even if it's in the Word of God. So you feel this sense of the influence of the world. Okay. But on the other one, on the other side, uh, the celebration, the big jamboree, the experience, the uh, gifts, and so on and so forth, the healing. And again, I'm not saying that there isn't reality and and good things within this. God is so gentle and merciful to us, etc. But I would say overall, if you ask, are people being led towards something which is very distinct and in opposition to the culture, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like it's the same sort of interest that you find in the culture. That is, let's have an experience, <coughs> only now with Christian, uh, Christian uh, uh, a Christian context. Yes. Um, you, you talked about the, uh, the first revolution in the reformation and the, the ones
1: yeah. sort of humanism and the Enlightenment. Right. And uh, you say we're, we're coming up and perhaps in need
2: of
0: a third one. Mm.
2: It, it seems to me it's going to be slightly different nature in one sense.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear Red's views on this, but I, I feel, and, and all of you guys here on this, but I, I feel that um, it has exposed us, the, the, the Muslim um, presence and particularly its concern about the relationship of law in, in the culture. Law, this is what uh, Ian's been dealing with. Law and, and, um, and what uh, people are doing and who frames the laws, who has the possibility of changing laws. All this kind of thing. That we've been exposed. Once again, our non-involvement as Bible-believing Christians is only too apparent. So, first of all, the idea that something could be blasphemous is is uh, is very strange to many people in the culture, but it shouldn't be to us. And we should have a category like that. Um, and there was a law made uh, in a previous co- uh, generation. What are we going to do about that? Now, the, there are two ways we can go. We can either continue to hold on to what we have from our heritage, as for example. In something like uh, the abortion issue, continue to fight to return the law to where it was, keep up the re- fi- the fight uh, relentlessly, no matter how how many setbacks we have, as in the case of Wilberforce and slavery. Keep on it, or we can just say, "Oh well, the situation's changed now. It's a pluralistic society, so let the Muslims have their law bla me, let the Christians have this, let the Jews do this, and let everyone have, a, have what they like and say. And with that second, what you've done is you've given up any concept of it being a Christian culture. Now, this is a difficult one. and I'm not sure where I, I stand in it, um, except that, by and large, I mean in the details, but in, by and large, what I feel we have to do is to see how precious a heritage we have and not lightly give it up. The danger is, in a sense, that the freedom we gained through the Reformation in terms of the style of Parliament and things we have now also opens the door to its own destruction. Indeed, that's absolutely right. But then, I would say, the principle we have to remember is let the best man win. In other words, if that is the way it's structured, uh, the people who get the majority vote in Parliament. Let us be the majority. So let's get in there. It's an even greater reason not to just capitulate. I'm very thankful, for example, that there's been this change in the law concerning education about religious studies, that Christianity is still being represented in the educational system, and that uh, it hasn't been uh, withdrawn. It saddens me to see all these mosques around the place. It should send you. I mean, this is partly because I've got a daughter out in the Hindu-Buddhist culture, and when you go there, man, and you don't see any churches and you don't hear any church bells, and you see the effect upon the culture, you you say, you know, this is this is uh, something which is a marvellous heritage of ours. And so we, we should we should struggle to to maintain it, but not just to maintain it in the sense of trying to keep something alive which is dead, but to re—that's why I use this expression reform, that to get in there and change it. Again and, and recover it to its, its previous health. Not meaning that it was in perfect <coughs> health, but to recover what was was there and now has been lost. But some of these discussions are difficult and we might disagree on them, but uh, that seems to me is where we're at.
1: Yes. I, I fear, Ronald, that evangelicals will begin to concede on quite a rock, wide front in the next 10 or 20 years on the whole issue yes. of the uniqueness of Christ. I think they yes. have signed there right. already, right. Um, uh, one of the, well, the worst experiences I can remember on, on faith in the city was having to argue on an Anglican commission that we should actually include that phrase. And we couldn't include the phrase the uniqueness of Christ. Mm. It was the supremacy of Christ. And there was a difference. Mm. Mm. Uh, and there were a number of evangelicals on that commission who, yeah. to say the very least, were equivocal yeah. about them. Yes. So I think that's, that's, right. that's another exactly. issue that we have that's to right. be prepared for with an evangelical constituency. That's we know it. what's happened to the, the liberal constituency. And mm. that's true
2: also, really, with regard to other versions of Christianity that, that evangelicals are inclined to view pure liberalism as a valid form of yeah. Christianity mm-hmm. yeah. where, where I mean pure liberalism has a God that hasn't spoken and exactly. doesn't judge and exactly doesn't right. say exactly so it's, right it, you know, it, but nevertheless I mean mm-hmm. evangelicals they should speak of, of, of leading liberals as Christian brothers which yeah. is an unwise at least exactly I totally agree with you, And the pluralism
1: <coughs> is very sad.
0: Mm. Yes?
1: What do you think is, is, is the right balance between evangelism and social action? Because I'm mm. aware over the past ten years of life, grown up and had mm. to think these issues through, that there's been the a fundamentalist thing, forget the social action, I've right. got to convert the right. world. And then there was the reaction against that that you described, and evangelical Mm. Christians getting very involved in social action, and some saying, Mm. "Well, you can't separate the two; they both go together." Yes, and then some people saying, "Well, you've gone overboard on the social action." Mm. Now, are they both together, and we've got to do both, and that's that, or do we have to divide them and put priorities?
0: I I would like to go one step further back, and, and, and say that it isn't just a question of. Should we do the one, i.e. evangelize, or should we do the other social gospel? That there is a deeper question involved, and that is, do we really believe Christianity is true? Mm -hmm. Now, if that isn't resolved, it doesn't matter what mix you get down on this level, whether you're on the fundamentalist side of social gospel, in, in the end it's not going to go anywhere as far as I'm concerned. We will only touch the people who are on the very periphery of society. Uh, we won't touch the thinkers, the people who are in art, the people who are, you know, pioneering in, in philosophy and so on. We won't touch them because we we haven't got something which has got guts. Yeah. It's all just uh, simple little things, tried answers. Now, in, in if that is resolved, okay. So assuming that that was clear, that we we were quite clear, that Christianity is true, we're going to stand on it, and we're going to take a stand, not just against Hinduism and, 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 and Buddhism and so on. Not because we don't like Chinese people because we don't like Indian people. Or, uh, it's, it's, not, it's got nothing to do with race. It hasn't got anything to do with where you live in the world. It's a question of what is true. And, and I pray that there will be Africans and, and uh, South Americans and, and Chinese who will lead the way for us if we won't lead the way ourselves, you know. It's got absolutely nothing to do with, with, with race and culture in that sense, okay. But if that is clear, if that issue is clear, the issue of truth, then it seems to me what the biblical position is, not, not either or, or, but both and. And some call to more, one more than the other, and that's the whole thing of calling. But all of us being aware that we're called to all of it. So let's take an example like these moral issues. Uh, that we're concerned about, that we should all be feeling like writing to our MPs. And CARE has a, has a situation, which doubtless you know about in this, in this area, but you can sign up, you can get their mailing list, you get to their mailings and they'll tell you the laws that are coming up in Parliament and keep you briefed so that you can then act. Now, there may be other organisations that do this, but at least there's one that is doing it like that. And so one can be... Act- But your actual work might be more in terms of evangelism, of building up the church, etc., etc. So it would vary for each of us, but all of us should be concerned on both sides. That's how I see it. But the, the prior issue, I would say, is the issue of truth.